Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we look at this text, I pray that you help us, that you give us understanding into the climax of history at this point in time, that we grasp something of the magnitude of what Zechariah is saying in this prophecy. Father, I pray that uh, I know we uh, come often with our hearts dull and we know Christmas is about Christ. We know these things, but yet, Lord, I pray that You will help us know them differently, even in a way where our hearts cry out in praise to You for Christ, that we would really rejoice that God has come in the person of Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask all of you a question this morning. And the question is this Who are your enemies? Who are your enemies? If I were to walk around my block and ask all my neighbors who their enemies were, I wonder what my list would look like. Would we all have the same enemies on the list? What might be on there? I think we live in a really odd time in history in a really odd place in history. Who's our enemies? One neighbor might say, the Democrats. The next neighbor might say, the Republicans. The next neighbor might say, North Korea. The next neighbor might say, ISIS. Who's our enemies? Why would we come up with such a vast array of enemies. I wonder how many Americans spend time in fear and trembling over the fact that they may be destroyed literally by their enemies. You know, I just read an article this morning about what a nuclear bomb would do if it landed right in the heart of Los Angeles? What if North Korea sent a nuclear bomb over, it connected in Los Angeles, and it went through all the horrible realities that would come from that? And I realized how unique it is to live at this time in history, even in this place in history, in South Dakota. You see... When I read that article, I don't live in Los Angeles. If I lived in Los Angeles, I would have a real fear that maybe at any moment a nuclear bomb might land right in the heart of our city. And your only hope of survival is basically not very good. If you leave your house, the radiation is going to get you if the explosion doesn't kill you. We don't think 
about enemies. We have a hard time relating to the Bible that talks about enemies all the time because we're too busy entertaining ourselves. It's hard to imagine that we have enemies. As I was sitting in Caribou this morning, uh, about 6.30 in the morning I got there, they always put a question on the board. What do you like best about Christmas? Was the question. And you can grab a piece of chalk and write what you think. I rarely ever write on that board, but I'm always interested to see what people say and what they think because I keep track of people there. I'm there enough. I know who comes in. I see what they write, and I feel like I learn about them. So people started writing stuff like presents, and I thought, well, that's a selfish person. They look forward to presents. No. And they just started writing all sorts of things, family. Some people you could tell were bitter. I get, I look forward to spending Christmas alone without my annoying family members, stuff like that. About 9 o'clock in the morning, after maybe 50 or 60 people have gone through, and a lot of stuff was up on the board, after I've been studying all week long about Zachariah's prophecy, about what Christmas is all about, no one had written anything about Jesus. And what came to my head is, we live in America. How can we write Jesus when we're not even looking for a king to deliver us from our enemies? We're too entertained. We're too comfortable. We live in the most dangerous place in the universe where we can't even relate to the Bible because we have it so easy and so good, and yet we have it exactly the same as everyone else in the universe. Everyone's greatest enemy is our greatest enemy. My prayer this morning is that you take a good look at your enemy. And my prayer is that you realize how weak you are, how you have no chance of saving yourself. My prayer is, now we can relate to this, we long for good leadership. If you work at some place where you have a boss, you want a man or woman of integrity to be your boss. You want good, fair leadership. How many people do you know that walk around and say, I love American politics because our leaders have such high moral character and they just lead so well? We don't run into people like this. We, we run into people that are frustrated with poor leadership. Anything bad that happens, we're trying to figure out who has failed, who's to blame, where is the poor leadership. You can relate to, deep down in your heart, you know it and you want it. You want to be led 
by someone who is strong and who has integrity and will do what is right. Now we might get that a little bit as Americans. But we need that person, that leader, because of our enemies. This morning, I want you to listen to Zechariah's Holy Spirit-inspired words. His prophecy, his song of praise, his heralding of good news. I want you to know why what he's saying is the most significant thing you'll ever hear in your life. What Zechariah is saying, a regular old run-of-the-mill priest from nowhere, what he says is the most significant thing you'll ever hear in your life. It matters. And yet we can read these things. We can sing these songs. Rejoice, rejoice. I'm not going to sing. <laughs> How's it go? Emmanuel has come or something like that. We sing that. Why are we rejoicing? Are we really understanding what Zechariah understands? Because Zechariah understood what was going on. The angel Gabriel told him what, who his son was going to be and how he was going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He got to spend three months with Mary and listen to what the angel Gabriel had told Mary. He knew that she was pregnant with the Son of God. He knew that his son being born was going to be the forerunner. And he knew that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the promises to David and to Abraham, as we saw in this text. And so we're going to spend two weeks on this for this reason. Zechariah brings up that this child that's to be born, this time that is dawned, is the fulfillment of the promise, God's promise to David and to Abraham. And as Christians, if we don't understand the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant, we really don't understand very much at all about Christianity or about our Bible. We don't understand about how God fulfills His promises in the person of Christ. We will we'll be bored with that with what Zachariah is saying. So what I want to do is, if I were to ask you today, what do you know about the Davidic covenant? I'm guessing not many of you are going to want to raise your hand and tell me all that you know about it. And I'm telling you, it's that important. So this morning you get to learn something. That's not like we're going to be able to exhaust it. We'll hit the high points. Next week, we'll look at the Abrahamic covenant. This passage is split up between Zechariah's prophecy that Christ is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. And then in verse 76, he switches and talks about who his son is going to be. 
as the forerunner, John the Baptist, uh, to Christ. So look at verse 67 with me. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, so he's already rejoiced. His mouth has just been loosed. He hasn't been able to speak since Gabriel gave him the promise of a son. Zechariah and Elizabeth are past childbearing age. Gabriel said they're going to have a son. He doubted. And the judgment that the angel Gabriel put on him for not believing these words directly from God were that he would be mute. He wouldn't be able to talk and he would be deaf. Well, his mouth has just been loosed and he praised God. First words out of his mouth were praise. And he said that his name shall be John. And then he prophesies. That's where we're at. And here's what he says. Verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. So let's stop there. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. We as Christians do not take the New Testament and throw away the Old Testament. The God of Israel is our God. And Zacharias praising his name for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now that statement is absolutely, breathtakingly amazing. What does it mean that God has showed up? By the way, Salvation always happens when God shows up, not when man works his way up. The way God saves is when He shows up. When He keeps His promises, that's when salvation comes to His people. That's when His people are redeemed. The word redeemed has this idea of slavery. And we know how God showed up to Israel when they were slaves in Egypt and He rescued them. He showed up at a certain time. In order to understand the climax of this moment, you have to understand history. Because Zechariah is saying he's visited his people, like past tense. He's come. It's arrived. There has been 400 years of silence in Israel with no prophet. And this is a culmination of a lot of time and many promises of God. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to rewind real quickly back to the Garden of Eden. And then we're going to hit the high points of salvation history. And then we're going to have a clear understanding of how glorious it is that the Lord of Israel has visited His people at this point in time. God created man in the garden, Adam and Eve. They lived in the blessing of God, in the presence of God. Fruitfulness was all around them. The garden was fruitful. Everything was flourishing until man sinned. This created a separation from the presence of God. The blessings turned to curses, pain and death. Now hinder 
uh, fruitfulness, and everything changes for mankind at this point. What happens to the sinner is he finds out what his greatest enemy actually is. And your greatest enemy, I'm going to give you in four points. First of all, your greatest enemy is you. Because inside you is a sinful nature. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, Every man and woman after Adam and Eve were born with a sinful nature. Not only that, man does not have righteousness. We're sinful by nature. We don't have righteousness. And to make matters worse, although we can't live in the presence of God in our sin, we will face God one day and give an account for our life. He's a good judge. He will punish and bring justice. And the punishment is already present physically as we're physically all dying and we're spiritually dead. Our biggest enemy is what sin has done to us into our nature, into the fact that we're going to give an account to God. We're going to stand before God on Judgment Day. But right away, in Genesis chapter 3, God promises to renew the fruitfulness and blessing through the seed of a woman, through a new line. There's going to be a godly line that God chooses that through that line... There's going to be one ultimate seed that will culminate in the person of Christ. And through that seed, the serpent's head's going to be crushed. And curses are going to be turned to blessings. And fruitfulness will be restored to the earth. And so we th see through Genesis, this line run through Seth and Enoch. And through Noah, we have this big moment where God sees the wickedness on the earth. He chooses Noah. It seems like here's maybe here's the righteous one. He's going to start over with him. And God gives a covenant. And after he destroys the earth, he says he will never destroy the earth with water again, with a flood. Unfortunately, Noah sins almost immediately after getting out of the ark. And man continues in his, with his biggest enemy, sin. It's not very long after, uh, people approximate about 1926 BC, a man named Abram is called by God and one of the greatest covenants, maybe the greatest covenant, or at least one that begins the great covenants, begins with a man named Abraham. God promises Abraham seed. God promises Abraham land. Or He promises him land first. Um, seed and blessing. 
Land represents uh, a place to live where there's safety and rest from your enemies. He promises him a family that will be so uh, so many, the nation will be so great that it's as many as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore and blessing from him. The whole world will be blessed through Abraham. We're going to talk about that covenant next week. And you know that from Abraham, God specifically chose to bless a certain line through Abraham and that through Isaac and not Ishmael and that through Jacob and not Esau. And once you get to Jacob is where we get to the 12 tribes of Israel and with, with Jacob's sons. About 500 years after Abraham is called, the people are many and they find themselves in uh, Egypt with now a wicked pharaoh that is oppressing them in slavery. And most of you know about the Exodus, approximated 1446 B.C., where God shows up, God visits His people and rescues them from their oppressors, from their enemies. Yet, God did not rescue them in that moment from their greatest enemy because Israel goes into the wilderness and continues the idolatry that's in their heart and the destruction that's in their life. And then about 400 years after that, David comes onto the scene, a king. The people want a king. They get Saul. Saul uh, is a man that does not trust God's Word, but trusts in the wisdom of man. So God chooses David. And we're going to look at the promise God gave David here in a moment. But then as you know, David isn't allowed to... Uh, he's the most successful king in Israel. He, he protects them from all their enemies, but he's not allowed to build the temple, a house for God, because God says your son's going to do that. David was a man of war. His son's going to build this glorious temple. Solomon does that. And then when Solomon dies, the kingdom splits. You have the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. And it's not very long. In 721, the northern kingdom is wiped out by the Assyrians. In 586, the southern kingdom is uh, wiped out by Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of the Bab uh, Babylonians. Uh, this is a dark time for Israel. But then in 536, uh, a Persian king, Cyrus, Cyrus, they've now defeated the Babylonians, made an edict that the temple can be rebuilt. And it took actually four edicts through uh, uh, Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes had to give two edicts before this temple could finally be rebuilt. The exiles could finally go back to Jerusalem and rebuild this temple. Anyway, and... Uh, in 444, Nehemiah completes the walls around the temple. And you would think, okay, we're getting things back on track. 
But then the Old Testament ends in Malachi. And here's the last verses of the way our Old Testament is ordered. Here's what it says. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So there's this prophecy that there's going to be one who comes, the prophet Elijah. We find out uh, from Matthew chapter 11 that this is actually, Jesus says that this is the coming of John the Baptist. So there's been 400 years since Malachi gives this prophecy. And now at this time, the Lord has visited His people. And look at what He says, verse 69. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear. Zechariah saying, that the culmination of the promise to David is here. So what is this promise that God gave to David? Back in Luke one thirty-one, uh, Gabriel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great and he'll be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob, which is Abraham's house, forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is the culmination of whom everyone's been waiting for since Adam and Eve. This is the time of visitation. This is the time the Davidic king shows up on the scene. In Matthew 1.1, here's how Matthew starts his Gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So God gave His people many covenants, but no covenants were like the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. These were promises from God, even despite when Abraham sinned and when Abraham's family sinned. If you read Genesis, it'll drive you crazy because God gives this problem to Abraham. Then Abraham's family continues to sin and screw up. Uh, Abraham is a liar, we find out. He, he lies about his wife. And what does he get from that blessing? He, he leaves these situations where he's trusting in himself and not God. God blesses him. It drives you crazy throughout Genesis. Why is God blessing Jacob? He's a scammer. Because the point 
of the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant is that salvation is going to come because God shows up and God keeps His promises. God says He's going to do something. And yes, He will punish temporarily His people and His kings when they get out of line but he will never go back on his promises that he gave to Abraham and that he gave to David. His promises in comparison to the Mosaic Covenant, for example, where God says, if you keep my laws, there will be blessing. If you don't, there will be cursing. With the Abrahamic Covenant, God comes to Abraham and says, this is what I'm going to do. He comes to David and he says, this is what I'm going to do. There's going to be a son that's going to be a king and he's going to rule on your throne. So let's look at the Davidic covenant. Let's look at why uh, these two covenants and, and especially the Davidic covenant is talked about so often. So many of the Psalms are about the uh, hope of this promise given to David. Uh, as you think about the Davidic covenant, uh, it's kind of weird because it telescopes out of the Abrahamic covenant, but Zechariah mentions this one first, so we're kind of working backwards into it. And, and just as God promised Abraham land, God promises that David's son would bring God's people into a land where they will be protected from their enemies. It's in a sense more specific uh, telescoping out of the Abrahamic covenant. He's also told that his son will be the one to build a temple for the Lord. And then the third part of it is that he'll establish the throne of his son's kingdom forever. He'll build a dynasty, a lasting house. And this one will be the Messiah. Those are the three basic parts of the Davidic covenant. And I want to show it to you in Second Samuel, starting uh, in chap- chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn there with me. <clears throat> David, in a sense, is a poor man's version of his son that's going to come. David's the greatest king ever in Israel's history, but not going to be nearly as great as the son that would come from him. And in in 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 1, here's what we read. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... So get the picture. David had been so successful. David's in his fancy dancy house and he has rest from all of his enemies. The people of Israel are blessed at this point. The king evidently is feeling a little guilty and he says to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in the tent. Remember, the presence of God dwells over the Ark of the Covenant that is in a tent. 
And David's saying, I live in this fancy house and I'm starting to feel guilty. God's dwelling in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, I think he's thinking too much about David at this point. He says, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. The prophet kind of says, it almost seems like Nathan's saying, who's to question David? I mean, look at what he's done. He's brought rest to Israel. He's the greatest king. Go do all that's in your heart. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan and said this, go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people up, up, up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? He's saying, when did I ever say that? Now, therefore, thus you should say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture. Remember who you are, David, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. I'm the one that has done this for you, David. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people. So there's the land. I'll appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give rest, give you rest from all your enemies. And so he gives a promise. He says, David, I'm going to give you a place. I'm going to appoint a place. I'm going to make your name great where your people will rest from all your enemies. And then he says this, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You want to build me a house? Here's the deal, David. I'm going to make you a house. I'm going to make you a kingdom. I'm going to make you a dynasty. This is what I'm going to do for you, David. I'm going to make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Who is that? That's Solomon. Solomon built the temple David wanted to build. And, and it says, uh, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, this is interesting. This prophecy says that He's going to build a house for his name. Solomon builds the house, but as soon as Solomon dies, what happens? The kingdom gets divided. The temple ends up getting destroyed. It doesn't look like Solomon's the guy, which makes sense of what we read then. Because it says, I'll be to him a, or he shall build a house for my name. I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there must be one after Solomon. 
I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But, so you're going to have sons that will commit iniquity, and I'm going to discipline them. I'm going to punish them for their poor ruling. But then he says this, But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Here's what he's saying. I'm going to keep my promise. You're going to have sons that are wicked. I'm going to punish them. But don't think the promise is going to fail. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. So there's the Davidic covenant. It's reiterated uh, more times throughout the Old Testament. Many times uh, the Psalms pick up parts of this uh, often. But there's a promise that there's going to be a king and his rule will never end. Isaiah, who came along uh, 250 years about after uh, David prophesies further about this son. Isaiah 9.6, here's this familiar passage. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here's how this is going to be kept. God's going to do it. He's going to come. He's going to be this ruler, the one we all long for. Yes, He's come, but aren't we waiting for the day when we're living in the new kingdom? When Christ is king, all of His enemies are under His feet. The whole land is flourishing. The beginning of it has come the surety of the continued promises to be fulfilled are sure because this son is a resurrected savior and then in isaiah 11 there shall come forth from a shoot from the stump of jesse it's interesting isaiah is given the ministry to preach to israel and to preach the good news so that their ears will become deaf and they'll be and their eyes will become blind and they won't believe. God calls Isaiah. He says, you go preach. They're not going to listen to you. Their hearts are going to be hard. Isaiah says, how long? He says, it's going to be like when a forest gets burned and there's only a stump left, a burning stump. But he says, out of that stump is going to come a tender little shoot from Jesse. David's father. There's going to be a little shoot that springs up. That's where the hope of Israel lies. This covenant is so sure. It's as sure as the night and and the day. Here's how Jeremiah says it. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, 
if you can break the covenant with, uh, or if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that the day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests and my ministers. The hosts of heaven cannot be numbered. The sands of the sea cannot be measured. So I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant. This promise will not be broken. God will not fail. And Zechariah is saying, that day has arrived. I'm in big trouble here. And I thought I might be. I want to get to how this is practical for your life as you go throughout your week. I want you to rejoice in the fulfillment of God's greatest promises. Know your enemies. Here's, here's what Zechariah says. He has raised up, in verse 69, a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. Here's what you need to know about horns. Horns drive out enemies. They're strong weapons. This is how the Old Testament uses this. Uh, Psalm 132.17, there will be make a horn to sprout up for David. Uh, Psalm 18.1-3, I love you, Lord, O oh, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Uh, speaking a blessing, Moses speaking a blessing of on Joseph. Here's what he says. A firstborn bull, he has majesty and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. And with them, he shall gore the peoples, all of them, to the ends of the earth. The idea is, is Zacharias saying, a mighty king that has power to destroy enemies has shown up. That's who is here. And your greatest enemy is not outside of you. It's inside of you. It's the sin that lies in your heart. And our sin brings about death. Not just physical death, but the promise of eternal death. We are all in reality as sons and daughters of Adam living in the shadow of death. And we're absolutely crazy. If in the shadow of death, and the destruction of our sin if we're not looking out saying, is there some good king who's a savior that can take care of this enemy that I have no power to take care of? We're all living in the shadow of death and we need a strong king whose rule is going to last forever, who can destroy our greatest enemies, whom can help us serve God without fear. How could that ever happen? Well, Jesus came to pay the price for your sin and my sin so that we can actually live for Him not in fear of judgment, but in expectation of just a greater and greater union in the household of God. It's unbelievable. So I want you to look to the King of Kings for saving. 
at the end of this passage, verse 76, you and you child, speaking of John the Baptist, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will be go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet to the way of peace. Do you see the picture Zacharias sees? He knows our enemy is sin and that we sit in the shadow of death and his son is going to prepare the way for the dawning light that's going to show us the path of peace. So, number one, know your enemy. Number two, look to the King of Kings for your saving. And number three, submit to the King. And here's what I want to end with. Jesus Christ is a King. He isn't just a Savior. He has a kingdom. You see, you're either in rebellion to His kingdom and will be destroyed by Him as an enemy, or you're a servant. One who bows knee to the King and says, my kingdom doesn't rule, His does. Jesus Christ is a saving King. Let this... I want to leave you with Psalm 2. Listen to how crazy this world is. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. That means His king. Here's what they say. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This king, God's king, let's get rid of all this. Let's burst forth. Let's burst into our freedom and into our kingdom. This is how stupid we are in our sin. But here's what the world says. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Here's God's response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He'll speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask me, and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Now therefore, Aberdonians, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish away. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. My prayer is you're so broken in the shadow of death that you take refuge in the Son. That you say, that Son is my only hope. Jesus Christ, He's the one that can destroy my greatest enemy. Father, thank You that You kept Your promises to David. Father, I even thank You that we're yet to see how 
glorious this rule is going to be. As of right now, your enemy's death is sure, but we're waiting for the day where we see the fulfillment of all your enemies being destroyed, death being destroyed. Father, we can't wait to live in the renewed earth where everything's flourishing, death is gone, blessing is everywhere, no more cursing. So Lord, we look forward in faith to Your second coming, that You'll send this great King. Father, I pray that we would be humble, that we would remember that our Savior is also a King, that we might submit and live our lives in a way that would honor and glorify Him, that we would live humble lives as servants. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.